All right. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Next week, uh, we'll take a little break from our walk through the letter of of Hebrews, and we'll start uh, focusing in a little bit and more intentionally on Christmas. Uh, And we'll do uh, Christmas, and then on the 22nd, we'll do an all-family Christmas celebration, and then uh, we'll wrap out, we'll we'll end up the... uh, New Year on the 31st here. And so, um, but here we go. Hebrews chapter 3. Last week, uh, we, we saw that Jesus is greater than Moses. And now, a lot of people say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Jesus has to be greater than Moses. But the author, the writer of Hebrews says, let me tell you two incredible ways in which uh, Jesus is greater than Moses. And he says in 3 verse 3, uh, he says that, that Jesus is greater than Moses the same way a builder of a house is greater than the house that he built. And so, in other words, uh, Jesus is greater than Moses because he made Moses. Uh, because he, bu- he deserves all the praise that Moses would very much lack. And, and verse 4 makes it very implicit, I'm sorry, uh, makes the implication explicit in saying that, that God is the maker of, of all things, therefore, when we see Jesus, we get to see the face of God. And this is what he's written to us back in chapter 1, verse 8. And then, uh, secondly, in verses 5 and 6, what we saw was that Jesus is greater than Moses in the way that a son over a house is greater than the servant of the house. That, that the son is the heir of the house, that he owns it, he rules it, he provides for it. And in other words... Uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 6, is a restatement of the very beginning of this letter when we got to verse 2 in chapter 1 where it says that, that in the last days God spoke to us in His Son, uh, number 1, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and then number 2, through whom uh, He made the whole world. And so, so Christ is the creator of all, that He is... The, the heir of all, and that is he made all things, including the people of which Moses is a part of. Um, and that he is the heir of all things, including the house in which Moses was simply a servant of. And, and again, that is not to say that Moses isn't significant to the story of God, because he very much is. Uh, but the idea that you would say, okay, both of these guys are equally important, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you, you've made a mistake, if that's what you think, because Jesus is superior to what Moses brought to the end. And then, at the very end, we just very, we very, very briefly touched on the last half of verse 6. And we did so because there was no way to unpack it uh, as well as we should have, which we're going to do today. But the, the writer draws us into the picture, and he says to us that, that we are the very house of God, that the house that his son has made, the house that his son inherits, and then he uses a word if, and we're going to, we're going to talk about this quite a bit today, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, the, the if in that statement, and we're going to find another if a little bit later, uh, is, is tremendously, is a tremendously serious thing. Uh, in fact, this is one of those passages that uh, is, it's, it's hard to teach because I don't know how to give it its full and due course of time. Um, 
that, that we are His household. We are God's people. We are His possession, His inheritance. And uh, that is, we are saved if. Uh, oh my God. Is that what they just said? It's hardcore out there, man. Uh, this, this if is so serious and it's so important that the rest of chapter 3 uh, is a support and explanation of it. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's so much, so important that the rest of this book will try to make if very plain to us. And, and I think here in America, it's even more important uh, that, that we would hear it and understand it because we're confronted by, by voices in books and radio and sermons and uh, songs that, that use a term uh, unconditional uh, and we use it carelessly. Uh, we, we try to uh, use it in terms of like unconditional love or unconditional acceptance. Uh, and, and, and very often it's used, but there's no effort to make sound biblical distinctions about what that word truly means. And, and so our aim this morning is to try to tackle that uh, in, in, a, in a big set of verses uh, with our time together, and we're going to see primarily two things at play. The first part, we're going to see this this warning. Uh, we're going to explore a warning by by looking to the past, and then what we want to do is we want to see an encouragement by looking at how we treat one another, so that we can better understand who we are in Christ. And so that that's kind of our aim. Um, it's it's going to be a hard road. Uh, I was joking with someone earlier this week about uh, if I say, "Hey, do you guys get that?" Um, and and you don't get it, just do this like you do get it, and then we'll get out of here much quicker. Uh, because I'm a little concerned about talking in circles this morning. Uh, and so, uh, not I mean, I'm a trained professional, so I never do that. So let, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning through the with the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would speak to us very clearly, that you would make plain... Uh, these verses this morning, that you would speak to our hearts in a way that that some of us would be drawn to repentance and then to worship, and then some of us would be drawn to worship because of our repentance. Father, we ask something this morning that we really cannot conceive of on our own, and so we pray through the power of your spirit and your love that we would understand this clearly. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Alright, so th- there's two big ifs that we find in this passage this morning. We need to do a little bit of work so that we can understand the weight of the passage. And, and the first is where we ended last week uh, in verse 6b. Uh, and it simply says this. Simply says this. There we go. We are... All right, we are his, so we are Christ's house. We are his house, uh, meaning his household. We are his people. If, and if you like to circle and underline your Bible, this is a great word. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, here's what, I, here's what I want us to notice very carefully, all right, because this can get very confusing if we're not careful. It does not say we will become Christ's house if. We hold fast to our hope. It doesn't say that. It does say we are his house 
if we hold to our hope. Okay, so you're like, that sounds like a semantic, and it's not. Okay, because in other words, the holding fast to our hope is the demonstration. It's the evidence that we are now his house. Okay, it's the evidence that we are his house. Now look at, look at verse 14. We're going to jump and we're going to come back. Verse 14 says this, For we have come to share in Christ, Okay, now we got another two-letter word there, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now again, notice the wording carefully. It does not say we will become sharers in Christ in the future if we hold to our assurance. It says we have come to share. Okay, that's a past tense phrase. We have come to share if we hold our original confidence. In other words, the holding fast to our original confidence verifies that something real and lasting has happened to us. Something real and lasting has happened to us. Namely, that we share in Christ. We truly are born again. We truly are converted. We truly are made part of Christ's house. That's what this author is trying to get us to understand specifically in these verses this morning. Okay? So, so and I bring these up first because these verses present kind of this funnel toward understanding our state with God. Uh, that, that both virtues, verses... Uh, teach us something I believe can easily be confused or overlooked. Because what's presented here is a condition for being, not becoming. Okay, Because who you are in Christ becomes instantaneous. Who you become in Christ, that's not what we're talking about this morning. And so, so neither of these verses say you will become God's house if you hold fast to your hope. It says, we are God's house if you hold fast to your confidence. It's like, it's like saying um, you're a southerner if you say Coke instead of soda pop, right? Okay, so, so, so talking like this doesn't make you a southerner. It just shows that you are one, right? We say Coke around here. That's the way it works. And if you're from the north, you can get out, okay? Uh, that's, yes, talking to you, Connecticut. Uh, and so, 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 so I think the aim of both verses is that, that, that the if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope to the end, we show that we are God's house. This is, this is what defines the household of God. This is what defines God's people hope in God. God's people are confident in God. They hold fast to God as their boast. Okay, This is going to become very apparent in just a second. Okay, so, so that's the human trait and evidence of belonging in God's house. If, if you want to be assured that you are of God's household, test to see if you hope in God. Test to see if you have confidence in God. If you look to God for the security and the happiness of your future and the satisfaction of your hearts. Okay, so, so, so the message of verses 6 and verse 14 are the exact same. Hold fast to your assurance in order to show that you share in Christ. That's the, the, and the reason these verses can be misunderstood is that we can read them thinking that there is a way to be secure in Christ and then all of a sudden not be secure in Christ. Uh, that, that, and that simply is an unbiblical 
belief. The writer is taking great measure to assure us that you cannot lose your salvation. Now, what he's going to bring to the table is much more severe. Okay? So he says you can't lose your salvation, but the argument, and I think this argument gets presented time and time again as we walk through the Bible, is that there are people who believe that they're saved, that their hearts are not God's. Okay? And we're going to, we're going to find this laid out here in just a moment. That, that, and this is tremendously important because we're going to see in these actually there's a very real danger, and the result is not that these people lost their salvation. What's being revealed is by them not holding fast to their assurance, they show that they were never truly trusting in God to begin with. Although they looked very religious. And so, so we look to verses 7 through 11 uh, for a case study. And I love it. I love it when the Bible gives us like a case study immediately. Because you're like, I don't know what that, that means. And he's like, boom, here you go. All right, so we go back to the past, and we're going to look at uh, really Psalm 95, but uh, what it's telling us is a picture of the Israelites, and the setting is they've left uh, Egypt. God has rescued them from Egypt. They are in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and then their hearts begin to be revealed. So it says this, verse 7 in, in Hebrews chapter 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today... If you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a very serious warning being brought to the table. They shall not enter my rest. And again, the writer's quoting Psalm 95, which, which warns God's people to not harden, not turn away from the God who, who saved them. And this is precisely what happened in the story of the Israelites. Um, they murmured against the Lord. They had great discontent with his redemption. And, and at times they pined for the pleasures of Egypt, knowing, knowing that they hated it in Egypt. You ever get to that part in your life where you say, I know it's not satisfying, but it's satisfying enough? And they would consistently look at Moses and say, why would you bring us out here? We had it so much better in Egypt. And they didn't. They were slaves in bondage. They had no freedom whatsoever they didn't even know what freedom looked like and they would consistently come back and say why would you do this we could just we should just go back to egypt and be slaves and so our salvation is very much revealed in the condition of our hearts right now now there's there's ways to feign religious movement today in fact it's i think it's this is perhaps the easiest time ever to fake religious movement Right? You, can, you, can, you can go to Walmart and buy a Bible. Right? You can even uh, Instagram that, hey, reading my Bible today next to my coffee mug that says Mondays are the worst. Right? You can do that. You can, you can gather together in a church and you can sit in a row and, and you can even be found every once in a while being like, I'm going I'm to almost raise my hand. I don't want people to know, you know, in case they're looking. You can, you can buy 
angel tree gifts. You can be part of Merge Christmas Kids and out of your bank account you can, you can sacrifice and you can, you can feign religious movement very easily. And you can fool the rest of the world. But you can never fool God. You can't. And so the condition of our heart, and this is why uh, the writer was, is going to draw us to paying attention to our hearts. He will say, don't harden your heart. He will say, pay attention to the condition of your heart. So, so we, can, we can do this, but, but when it comes to salvation, it's a matter of the heart, and what's resting there eventually makes its way to the surface. Eventually, and much like it was with the Israelites, God rescues them from the slavery of Egypt. And then in spite of all that power and all that mercy uh, on their behalf, they tested God with this consistent grumbling and unbelief that he really would take care of them. They constantly thought that God brought them to the wilderness as a cruel, mean joke. And I wonder how many of our prayers end up just like that. Why would you bring me to this part? And what's bringing, what's being brought to the surface is a heart of unbelief. And the result of their grumbling was that God swore that they would never enter God's rest in the promised land, even though He was bringing them out there. He was taking them there. And the point is that the people of Israel are an example for us. For us. They, they had seen they had been treated with great mercy as God brought them out of Egypt by, by signs and wonders. And were they incredible signs and wonders? Absolutely. Absolutely. And these people, they had seen these signs. They had seen these wonders. They had tasted the powers of the age that is to come. And, and the Holy Spirit had been uh, at work in their midst. And they had participated in this power. And for a short time, while they were very, and for a short time, they were very happy and seemingly confident in God, but that was just a short time. It didn't last. And that, that's why this example is so important for the writer of Hebrews, that, that he wants the professing Christian to last. He wants us to persevere, because that's the only way we prove that we truly are God's house, that we share in Christ's salvation. And he says, in, uh, look, at, look at Israel and simply don't be like those guys. He says, look at them. Don't be like them. And this is why verse 8 is so important in light of verses 6 and 14. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Because here's what we know. We will all eventually end up in a wilderness. Right? We'll all eventually end up in a place where we say, I don't, I don't know what God is doing right now. And the writer says, in that day of testing, do not harden your heart against God. Don't do it. The condition of our hearts is the best indication of a life that is changed by Jesus or not changed by Jesus. And, and the point is that, that if we harden our hearts in the day of testing, if we murmur against God and we throw away our confidence and our hope that we have in God, we reveal that our hearts were never truly His to begin with. And sometimes the hardest truth is the most apparent one. 
John Piper put it this way, we cannot treat the grace of God with contempt, presuming to receive it as an escape from the Egypt of misery, but not being satisfied with it as guidance and provision in the wilderness of this life. He says, oh, how many professing Christians want the mercy of forgiveness so that they won't go to hell, but they have a hard heart toward the Lord when it comes to daily fellowship with him. And so, so our mistake we typically ask here is about our behaviors. We typically say, okay, so what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do in response to this? And really, the issue in the text is one of the heart. Where am I placing my hope and my confidence for not only the life that is to come, but the life that I live now? Who am I hoping in today? Who owns my heart? today in other words my my security and my assurance is not a decision or a prayer that i remember doing in my past my security and my, my assurance is the faithfulness and the power of god to keep me hoping in him today tomorrow and forevermore in fact it's it's a belief uh, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that, that he who began a good work in me will complete it to the day of Christ. That's the assurance. And so, so if our salvation, now walk with me here for a moment, if our salvation is a matter of the heart, then how do we guard our hearts to be certain that our hope and our confidence is in Jesus? How do we How do we do that? And for that, we're going to look inward, and then we're going to look at each other. Okay? So, so verse 12. The writer says this, Take care, brothers, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, now verse 12 has, has locked me up pretty much all week, so bear with me in this section. All right? So, so one of the questions that, that should be raised is, if our failure to hold fast to our hope and our confidence means that we were never really sharing in Christ. Okay, that's, that's the argument we're building. Right? Then, then what are we falling away from when we get to verse 12? Uh, in, in what sense can there be a falling away or a turning away from God if we never really were in Christ? And I think uh, one, one commentator gave a really good word picture for this. He says it's, it's, it's a lot like the difference between falling away from a fiancé and falling away from a spouse. That, that when you look at it from the outside, it looks like a very real and a very deep relationship. But one of those relationships was consummated through covenant. The other one has intention. Okay? And so, so I think the writer wants us to think about this in giving us the example of following the footsteps of the people of Israel in, in verses 7 through 11. And he points out that, that, that the people saw my works for 40 years and they still hardened their hearts against God and they went astray. And so, in other words, they, they had seen God divide the Red Sea and they saw them have they saw him give them great mercy to rescue them from the armies of Egypt they had seen him give water from a rock manna from the sky guidance with a pillar of cloud and fire they saw the the good laws that he gave them to live by and the leniency 
in their times of, of rebellion. Uh, and, and, but in spite of all this, their hearts became hard and they stopped hoping in God. They stopped hoping in God. They wanted to go back to Egypt and they made idols and they muttered. And this is what the writer means by falling away from the living God. They had been swept up into the incredible and mighty workings of God. They had, they had tasted His power, benefited from His Spirit and His goodness, and they had been enlightened that it was God. It was unmistakable who was their provision. It was unmistakable who was their hero. And then they fell away. So, so it was with them. So it is with people in the New Testament. And so it is with people today. And so their hearts became hard and in, in an evil heart of unbelief got the upper hand and they began to put their hope in other things in Christ. And over time they fell away from all the goodness that they had surround, been surrounded with. And Hebrew says that the explanation of this is that they had not come to share in Christ. They, they took part in certain measures of enlightenment and power and joy, but to use the words of Jesus, they, they were, um, there was no root to the plant. And because so, the plant withered. And so, one of, one of the commentators I read says, you can fall away from God to the degree that you have come close to the work of God. Uh, the love of His people, the light of His word, the privilege of prayer, the moral force of His example, the gifts and the miracles of His Spirit, the blessings of His providence and the daily revelation of sun and rain. It is possible to taste of these things, be deeply affected by them, and then to be lost in unbelief. Because Jesus Christ Himself is not your heart's delight, and He's not your hope, and He's not your confidence, and He's not your reward. It's a very real danger we're talking about here today. So that, that's one question. How can you fall away or turn away from God if you were never a partaker in Christ? And, and the answer is there are many ways to partake to the nearness of God without trusting Him, without hoping in Him, without loving Him. And, and so there are many ways to turn from Christ without having ever been part of Christ Himself. And then the second question is, so what do we do about that, right? Uh, what shall we do? How shall we know and enjoy and be assured of eternal security? How do we know that we are in Christ and we get to stay secured in Christ? And, and for that, uh, verses 12 and 13 are going to give two answers. One's going to be kind of general and the other's going to be more specific. So let, let's go generally uh, in verse 12. It says this, take care, brothers, right? Lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so the general answer is simply this, look, take care, be vigilant of, do, do, don't be careless, don't be nonchalant or inattentive about the condition of your heart. Has your heart ever surprised you? Better yet, have you ever done something and you're like, oh, where did that come from? Right? You, you want to know where it came from? Your heart. Jesus makes it very clear. He said, it's, it's one of my favorite illustrations. And I'll try to be a grown-up boy for a little bit. But he says, he says, 
Everything that goes into your mouth goes through the stomach, out the body. But he says what comes out of your mouth comes from the heart. And then spend some time paying attention to what he says rests in there, which he says there's, there's evilness, there's anger, there's jealousy, there's all of these things that rest in your heart, which is why it's so desperately important that when we say, God, that you would please give me a new heart, we take him at his word. And so the general answer is, is pay attention to the condition of your heart. Paul, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 5. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Or, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Be diligent to confirm your election and your calling. So don't coast, don't drift, don't take uh, your perseverance and faith for granted. That all kinds of alternative passions are making war on your soul every day. All day long. In fact, they want to steal your faith. They want to replace Christ with other treasures. And so the author tells us, take care, be on the lookout, be earnest, be watchful over your heart. Because as Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows springs of life. And so the answer of verse 12 is to take heed. And now, here's the argument that I brought to myself today, or this week. That, that it, someone might ask, well, okay, if I am truly in Christ, as I believe I am, why do I need to be so vigilant over my heart when you say that once you are in Christ, you are eternally secure and you can't lose your standing? Why do I need to continue to be vigilant over my own heart? And I think this question assumes something um, that the New Testament says is not true. That, that it assumes that God's way for his chosen people uh, to get to heaven is without vigilance. <laughs> that it's without watchfulness and, and self-assessment and diligent use of means. But in fact, uh, Jesus says uh, in Luke chapter 13, verse 24, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Peter tells us in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That, that, that the truth is not that true Christians don't have to be vigilant and watchful over their hearts, but that you can know if you are a true Christian, if you are vigilant over the condition of your heart. I try to tell my kids this all the time. Any, anytime I think they're going somewhere where they could be idiots, which is all the time, everywhere, I say, guard your heart. Guard your heart. I, we try to teach our men, uh, our boys, that as they become men, that the role of every good father, the role of every good husband, is to protect the heart of his children. It's to guard the hearts of his ladies. Because in not doing it, someone else is going to attack it. And so, so we, it's, it's cavalier. It's, it's, okay, I, want, I wrote this, I'm going to read it, and if this is you, this is, at least we know where we're at. It's the cavalier Christians who need to be worried about their standing. It's those who were baptized and walked an aisle or prayed a prayer and took communion and 
came to church, but, but you don't love Jesus or count Him as your dearest treasure or bank your hope on Him and look forward to seeing Him and can say to live as Christ and to die as gain. That, that these are the self-assured ones that need to feel very insecure. Because you're not. You're not. There, there are people often in church who, who treat their salvation like a vaccination. Uh, that that they, they got the vaccination years ago and they assume all is well without giving any thought to the dangers of unbelief around them. They say, I got inoculated against hell when I was eight years old or six weeks old or, or you know, uh, 30 years old. Um, and so getting into heaven is not a matter of vigilance over their heart uh, it, and keeping it from being hard and unbelieving. It's It's simply a matter of making sure that the inoculation happened, right? And, and these are the ones who the Bible says you are in a tremendous danger. Tremendous. And that, that's, that's the first answer. That, to st- I'm sorry, that's the first answer to, to know how to stay assured of your eternal security, that you would take heed of your heart, you would guard against unbelief, that you would be vigilant, you'd maintain your confidence and your hope in Christ against all the competing treasures of the world. And then the second one is much more specific. Verse 13. Okay, pay attention to this, church. Because you are given a responsibility. You are invited into a deeper part of the story. But exhort, which is a fun word to say, right? Exhort. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so the, the second answer is that eternal security is a community project. It's a community project. What shall we do at Merge to avoid an evil heart of unbelief and not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins that tempt us every day to treasure them more or less than we treasure Jesus? How do we do that? And the answer is that we must be the church for each other. You have to be the church for one another. And and what's the main thing that the church what is the main thing that the church does for each other? That's a great question to ask, right? Right? Why do we even exist here? And we speak to one another in ways that help us not be deceived by the allurement of sin. We do, or to put it positively, we speak to each other in ways that cause us to have hearts of faith in the superior value of Christ over all things. That's what we get to do. We, we fight to maintain each other's faith by speaking words that point people to the truth and the value of Christ. That's what, that's what you're supposed to do if you are indeed found in Christ. That is, that is your privilege and responsibility to look at people and say, I'm going to walk in community with you so that we can go to Christ together. So unbelief means failing to rest in Jesus as your great treasure. And so, so how do we help each other? We help each other believe uh, means showing people reasons why Jesus is more to be desired and trusted and loved than anything else. And right here is, is one explanation 
why God would ordain the Christian life to be a life of individual and community vigilance. One, one of my favorite uh, complaints that uh, I hear people say about why they don't like the church is they think that the church is too judgmental. And there's a good case to be made that we are too judgmental. Um, but but the numbers that I've seen in people being too judgmental because people walk, were trying to walk in accountability with them, staggering. That they were holding me to holiness. They were walking in my life and saying, hey man, that's a danger zone. You, you don't need to do that thing. That, you realize that's, that's biblical accountability. That's, that's what we are called to do for one another. That when one is sinning, we walk in love and we draw that person back to Christ. That's the goal. But yet we don't like that and so we try to find another place that will let me do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, without telling me that that's not holiness. So, so if, if eternal security involves a daily battle against unbelief, where, where the weapons of victory are faith-building exhortations about the trustworthiness of Christ and the greatness of Christ and the value of Christ over all things, we have to understand that unbelief means failing to rest in Jesus as your greatest treasure. That's what this is all about today. Is Christ my greatest treasure? And if Christ isn't your greatest treasure, then the argument is being made that you're not in Christ. You're not. So if we must speak this way to each other every day to make sure that we, we all keep trusting Him, then, then He is made much of day after day. He is often always spoken of and always the center of attention. And so God ordains that eternal security is a community project because he doesn't want his son forgotten like a vaccination. Instead, he wants him celebrated daily as the greatest treasure of your life. And that's what, that's what I love about vaccinations. Right? You walk in and one day, that's important, you needed that vaccination, and, but then you forget when you had it last, Right? Like, when was the last time you had a tetanus shot? Right? At one point, that was important to you. And you really only think about it again when you're worried that that rusty nail is going to kill you. And too often, that's the way we think of life with God. That's the way we think of the role that Jesus plays. Well, he's inoculated me. I'm safe. And then in the day of trouble, you say, wait. I remember this time. And it's a great warning. And so he continues, and, and really we've, we've kind of walked through it. He takes us back in verses 16 through 18 about the, Egyptian, about the Israelites and their relationship with Egypt. So we, we can start wrapping this up. So here, here's, here's what I know about these verses. That these are hard words to read uh, when, when what we hope is that there would be a happy ending for all of us. Because that's, that's what the Bible is forcing us to kind of deal with. That there are some who treasure Christ greatly and they have a happy ending. And there are some who won't treasure Christ deeply and they will not have a happy ending. 
And then the, the danger that I feel or the pressure that I feel here is that there are those of us who are in this middle ground that we're not hostile toward God, but yet He's not our greatest treasure. And the Bible is pretty clear about what that looks like. And the truth is that, that God has been honest, that He's been gracious to us, that he is, He's provided for us and He's revealed His glory over us and, and He has led us and still um, we can stand like the Israelites in arrogance and believe that what we are owed is something different than what He provides. And so it is with us. And, and so, so here, I guess this is really where we come down. Jesus has to mean something to us. That's what, that, that's what we've been walking down. Jesus has to mean something to us. He is the only one who can soften our hard hearts. The only one. And so the question we have to deal with today, and I don't, I don't take this lightly. In fact, I think, I think it should keep you up at night. Is, is my heart His? Or does He share my heart with other things? See, because this is, I, we're, I think it was J.D. and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. That, that what we want to think about when it comes to life is a checklist life. Right? I say, hey, what are your priorities? And what do you immediately do? You say, well, I am a blank first, blank, you know, and then you move down. And, and so typically the way it works out is something like this. Well, well, my relationship with God is most important with me. And then my relationship with my spouse. Then my relationship with my kids. And then my work relationship. And then, you know, and that's basically, oh, we're just relational beings anyways. Now the problem is, at what part in your day do you stop being a child of God? At what part in your day do you get to check off, whoop, did my stuff with God today. Now I can move on to being a spouse. Then let's assume that you figured out a way to do that. At what point do you stop being husband or wife? What point do you stop being mom or dad? What, what point do you stop being employer or employee? You, you don't. It becomes who you are. So, so a checklist life is very misleading because you never truly accomplish anything. And so what we're, being, what we're wrestling with here this morning is does Christ own my heart? Because here's the thing. He's not competing against the other things in the world. The other things are competing against him. He walks in and he says, I don't have to compete. I'm that good. I am that good. So instead of him being at the top of the list, how about you just put him at the center of your life? And then everything else circles around that. Everything else gets filtered through the fact that, yeah, my kids don't have my heart. Jesus does. And if, if they really wanted to compete, they'd lose to mom. That's the way it works. So is Christ in the center of my heart's desires? And if he's not, then the Bible says you need to deal with that. And if he is, 
the Bible says you worship because of that. See, I told you I was going to talk in circles for a little bit. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Let us pray. Father, we come to you. And we thank you for hard words at times. We thank you for heavy lifting. And we pray this morning that we would be very mindful of your movement. That if our hearts are not yours, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would draw us closer to you. That you would draw us to repentance by showing us the worth of your Son. Father, there are people in here today that need to get their hearts right with you. I pray you would give them the courage and the boldness and the urgency to step forward, to seek prayer. We thank you that our great hope is found in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.